Welcome to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. was delighted to welcome Dr. Sagar Dugani to the podcast. Dr. Dugani is an academic, hospital-based physician dedicated to reducing health disparities associated with type 2 diabetes and its common complications of the heart and the brain. He uses large data analytic approaches to improve hospital care and lead to better, safer care for hospitalized patients. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for being here. This is wonderful. So first, thanks for this opportunity. Tell me a little bit about how you became interested in medicine and then interested in AI. I've always been interested in medicine. I grew up in a family of doctors. I grew up in India. We have over 20 doctors on my father's side. So it was always part of the expectation that we would at least think about medicine and maybe go into medicine. And after I completed grade 12 in India, I moved to Toronto, where I did my undergraduate education, completed my master's, and also did a combined program. It's a combined, it was a seven-year program where we do medical school as well as a PhD. I completed that program, and that's when I was very committed to a profession or a career in medicine. And I moved to Boston for residency where I got further training in internal medicine, uh, as well as public health and population health and epidemiology. And I've been at Mayo Clinic for about five years now. And a lot of my time is spent on research as well as taking care of patients. So there's, there's been a lot of influence growing up to get involved in medicine and be part of the medical profession. And I've had a number of uh, excellent role models along the way who've helped me and have shaped my thinking as I entered medicine. You know, the seven-year MD, PhD, dual degree is a lift. Uh, what made you decide to do both? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It always comes up. A lot of people ask about that. And one of the things... Before I enrolled in the in the combined MD-PhD program, I was interested in research. I had just completed a master's in cell biology, and that cell that research was based on type 2 diabetes. And as I did that, I felt that I wanted the clinical aspect of care. I wanted the aspect of taking care of patients. I wanted the aspect of being able to talk to people about their whether it was diabetes or any other medical condition, to be able to talk about it and understand their experience and let my research be guided by what patients are experiencing. And that was the reason I felt I couldn't decide at the time if I should continue on the research track or if I should go to medical school and be a physician only and not be involved in research. So I decided to enroll in both. And so that was the, that was the combined program. Uh, exactly as you said, it was, it was a rigorous program. We did part medical school and then the PhD and then completed medical school, but it was a fantastic way to try and let one inform the other. So research is informed by patient experience and uh, our patient experience hopefully informs our research questions. So it was, it was a transformative period for me. 
What a wonderful educational opportunity. Tell me how you became interested in rural health. When growing up in India, uh, I grew up in a urban, semi-urban part of the city. And we had a lot of family members who were in rural parts of India. And I would spend a lot of time visiting them over the summers and other times. And I could see a stark contrast between how life was in rural areas and in urban areas. And there were a number of things that came along with it. Some of them were access to care. Some of them were just access to certain types of food or information technology. And I always thought it was something that was just there in the area where I grew up and what I had seen. But after I worked in Canada and now in the US, I noticed that there are a lot of differences between rural and urban populations. Even here in Canada and the United States and actually globally, there are a lot of differences between rural and urban populations. It's difficult to define rurality. It means different things to different people, but there are a lot of differences between uh, what people in rural and urban areas experience. And then I started to be influenced by the idea that where one lives should not decide how well they live or how long they live. And that's what I started to see in rural areas. And simply by virtue of staying in a particular place, being distant from a particular place, they might have certain experiences. And that's when I thought we need to do better and be able to bridge this gap between the rural experience and the urban experience. And that's been uh, the priority of our research and, and focus of our research over the last several years. For those who are unfamiliar with the way AI is currently used in medicine, what might be a good example or two? There are many ways in which AI is currently being used. AI, for example, people are using it to look at x-rays, radiology images. They're using AI. Some people refer to it as artificial intelligence. Some call it, refer to it as augmented intelligence. So these are all ways to think about how we can take vast amounts of data and process them in ways that conceptually make sense to us, but we're not able to process them. And so AI is a is a way to use vast amounts of data. Some of the data may be from the, your visit to the clinic today, but some of it could be from the last four years, five years, and 10 years, and 20 years of data. So to have a machine or to have a, a way to integrate all these data and be able to predict certain patterns, they may be able to predict, is this person likely going to have a disease? What does the x-ray show? What does the CAT scan show? Maybe some of these things will be better than the eye in, in being able to identify medical conditions. They might be able to pick up signals. Uh, we've seen a number of cases where people say, if you have certain types of biomarkers, if you have certain risk predictors, it might predict your risk for certain events later, maybe for risk for a heart attack. It might predict your risk for stroke. So these are all ways in which we can use artificial intelligence, use large amounts of data and predict disease before we develop symptoms, before traditionally doctors would be able to predict that, before the health system would uh, be able to recognize it. We're trying to use data and pick up things before they're obvious uh, in the hospital or clinic. We've seen a number of innovations around using ECGs and ECGs or electrocardiograms. These are for uh, to see look at the, the activity of the heart. And they're using a number of AI models to predict disease well before physicians or anyone else would diagnose those conditions in people. So this is uh, this is a smart way of using large amounts of data, 
predicting problems or predicting solutions before they're obvious to us, and hopefully trying to get care to people faster than we normally would with our with our current methods. I don't often hear the words AI and rural in the same sentence. You're right. I think it isn't often used in the same sentence. And it's only in the last few years, more people are thinking about rural health. If, if you look at the United States, even the last couple of years, I would say about 15 to 20% of our population lives in rural areas. So it's a fairly large proportion of people that live in rural areas. And it's in the last few years, we've started to recognize as a research community, as a medical community, or even from a public health or a policy perspective, that people in rural areas are experiencing a number of disparities. And maybe shortly after that, AI has has taken over almost every aspect of our life, including medical research, including the way we provide care. And in that context, people have started to ask, what is the role of AI and rural populations? Is there a role? We know that rural populations are already experiencing a number of differences compared to urban areas. And people have been asking, can AI help to bridge that gap? Can AI address some of the disparities and differences and barriers that people in rural areas are experiencing? So that's a that's a more positive perspective on it. There is another aspect where people say, could AI maybe just widen some of these gaps between rural and urban areas? But both thoughts of how AI might influence rurality um, are being are being explored actively as a way to bridge gaps between rural and urban populations, as well as exploring if they could potentially widen some of the existing disparities. It's interesting because I've seen and most people think of disparities in terms of access. You're further away from the hospital. You don't have maybe as consistent cell service once you get out of once you get down the road a little bit here. Maybe you don't have as many options for phone connections, internet activity, things like that. Uh, but there's a little bit more to it than that. And you kind of alluded to some of that. So I'm curious, what what kinds of questions have you been wrestling with when you think about rural disparities? Adria, that's a wonderful point. And that's exactly it. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. At present, if when we think about rural populations, we think about access in terms of a primary care provider. We talk about access or we don't have a clinic in a rural area. It may be in Virginia, maybe in Minnesota, Wisconsin, in any place. We think of access more in terms of physical resources. We don't have a physical clinic. We don't have a physical primary care provider. We don't have medications. We don't have an x-ray machine or a CAT scan machine. We're always thinking about it in terms of physical resources. And that is currently how a lot of care is being provided. It's by the presence of, of a physical provider is there and they provide care. What AI has managed to do and is still is still doing is it's replacing a lot of care. Some of it is virtual care. So now you don't have to go to a clinic. You can provide care over Zoom. You can provide care over a different medium. You can provide care over the telephone. You have hospitals have portals and patients can connect to their providers through portals, which is fantastic in reducing a certain type of access problem. Exactly as you mentioned, what about rural areas? Not all parts of the country have broadband access. How will 
if we start moving away from brick and mortar type care towards virtual care, how are people in rural areas when they don't have broadband access going to access care? How are people in rural areas if they don't have a computer at home or an iPad or a phone or a laptop? How will they connect to their provider? And these are some of the digital disparities that we're starting to consider as we say, AI is fantastic and let's roll roll out AI in every part of the country for every problem, for everyone. That that might not be the solution for everyone. Uh, for some people, what about people who might have uh, difficulty with vision? They might have difficulty with operating a computer. They may have um, arthritis. They may have other conditions. They might not be able to use an iPad or a laptop or a computer. So if we start transitioning all our care to a virtual model, we set up a different kind of disparity. Now we're no longer worried about physical providers or equipment, but now people are just not able to access even virtual care. So as we do this, and even the US government recognizes this and they have prioritized establishing broadband access in many parts of the country, it's, it's, it's something that it's recognized at a federal level and state level. So I think people want to make sure that as they increase access, they're not replacing one disparity with a different disparity. So tell me a little bit more about how AI might bridge those disparities where you see the promise and potential. AI has tremendous potential to, whether, whether we talk about bridging disparities or divides between rural and urban populations, they definitely have a role to play. And as we think about this, we have to think about, we have to think carefully about infrastructure. And that's going to be whether it's broadband access, whether it is people being comfortable using technology. We have a number of patients who are more comfortable traveling 50 miles to an appointment than connecting to a provider virtually. So we have to be, we have to be careful about how we roll this out. We have to be careful about expecting all patients to use this. So it would be, I, I think it would be, uh, it would be a very big step forward to transition everything completely from brick and mortar to virtual care. We need to still, uh, we still need to provide a hybrid model where patients are able to connect for convenience. Some people have the technology, they know how to use it. They have access to broadband and technology. And I think that would be, that would be perfect for them. However, we have to recognize that not everyone is going to be comfortable using technology or even have access to technology. So in those cases, we have to ensure that patients can still receive care and it may be brick and mortar, or it may be until we're able to establish infrastructure in rural areas or other areas. Some of the things that have come up is rather than expecting patients or people living at home in rural areas to all have computers or all have iPads or other devices is to have small clinics where they would have technology. So now rather than have, it would be very close to their homes. So rather than have an in-person provider, they would have somebody who could operate the machines there and help patients connect to providers. So that would be a reasonable compromise until we're able to establish all the infrastructure. We can have places that support virtual care. And a lot of these places can be closer to people's homes, even in rural areas. Having in-person appointments available to people. I think that would also be uh, another way to uh, continue providing care while people transition from brick and mortar to a virtual model. That's pretty exciting. I know that there's been a project that you were involved with 
around diabetes in rural communities. And I wondered if you might talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you, Adria. We're very fortunate to be to have received funding from the Center for Digital Health to support that work. And a lot of this ties into our observations from different studies. We have seen that rural populations have a number of disparities compared to urban populations. We used nationwide data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we looked at death at in different county levels. And we looked at death related to diabetes. And we saw that over the last 20 years, the death rate due to diabetes has been the highest in rural counties compared to other counties. And it's shown no change. We've looked at it from 1999 through 2018, and there has been practically no change in the death rate in diabetes in rural areas. has been extremely high. In comparison, in semi-urban and urban counties, the death rate for diabetes has always been lower. And we're trying to understand, and it goes back to a number of things we've talked about, Adria. It's about access. It's about knowledge. It's about being able to get care at the right time from the right person, have access to the right medications, being diagnosed early. So there are a number of reasons uh, for this trend. But what we noticed is that the death rate has been high in rural areas. We've also seen from other studies that the death rate for people with diabetes and from rural areas is higher when they're in the hospital. A number of people from rural areas have a number of highs and lows in their glucose values. So that again increases their risk of uh, risk of other events, complications, as well as death. So we said, why don't we try and put all of these together and see if we can improve some of these outcomes for patients? And that was the basis for our, for our study. Uh, I'm, I'm a hospital medicine specialist, so we take care of patients who are in the hospital, adult patients, and we see a number of patients every day who are admitted and have diabetes. A number of patients have extremely high values of glucose or extremely low values of glucose, both of which are problematic. So we said, is there a way where we can use AI, where we have a, where we have a ton of data on patients from several years, all from the electronic health record? Can we use those data, predict who is likely to have very high glucose levels or very low glucose levels? Can we predict who is likely to have hospital-related death. They may die in the hospital related to diabetes. And can we also look at what happens when people leave the hospital? We're very good at taking care of patients when they're in the hospital, but a number of things happen when they leave the hospital. So can we use AI to try and understand some of those events when they leave the hospital? And that's what our work is going to focus on. It's to use AI, look at patients from rural areas who get admitted to the hospital and ask what are some of the complications they're facing in the hospital? Can we predict those? And if we can predict them, then hopefully we can go on to develop interventions uh, to avoid these kinds of complications. That's the first part. And then the second part is to see some of the complications that happen when they leave the hospital and see if we can understand what those complications are, see who is at risk, and hopefully then in the next phase, go on to design interventions. That's really exciting on on a number of levels. You know, one of the things I think about is how much of the management of that disease has to do, again, with access, not just to education, but to good food, to 
medical screening, all of those things. Are there opportunities to track data like how near they are to to grocery stores versus living in what's often called food deserts? You know, if they're able to grow their own vegetables or not, how far away they are from the nearest pharmacy, for example. Absolutely. And diabetes is, there are a number of things that lead to diabetes and then diabetes then goes on to increase your risk for a number of other things related to the heart, the brain, the nerves, the kidneys and eyes. So it affects a number of different organs in the body. And in fact, it's there's a human burden to this. There's a human cost, but there's also a financial cost. And it's the most expensive chronic condition in the United States. A few years ago, they spent almost, the, the US spent almost $327 billion on managing diabetes. So there is a very big human cost cost to individuals, family members, caregivers, and then there's a financial cost and cost to the health system. So exactly as you pointed out, there are a number of things that we would like to look at. And diabetes is is more than just medications. It's more than just seeing your primary care provider. It's more than just seeing the diabetes specialist. There are things about, are you able to access good quality food? And that means fresh fruits, fresh vegetables. Are you able to exercise? We are looking at, we're even looking at the physical environment. If you live in an area where there are no sidewalks, the roads are not safe, the roads are not well lit, you don't have access to parks, or you don't have access to gyms, you're not going to exercise. So we have to talk about how social determinants can also affect overall health. And it's it's we've moved away from, from the earlier practice, which was you need to do this and you need to do that. You need to start, stop doing these four things and start doing these five things. We recognize that where people live is going to affect how well they do. So we, we are looking at, we're able to look at access to healthy food. We're able to look at access to grocery stores because part of the analysis we do is based on zip codes. So we have the zip codes of where people live and we have the zip code of things around them. So we are able to look at the physical environment, whether it's parks, access to food, access to gyms, safety. We can also look at a number of other factors in the neighborhood. And so those are all things that we will consider uh, as we, because all of those can either increase or decrease your risk for complications. And so it's very important. We, it's, it's almost impossible to separate an individual from their surroundings when we look at a complex condition like diabetes. So if you were to explain how an AI model captures all of this information, what does it do with it? How does it do it better than other research models and, and methods? I think AI is going to be fantastic because they the, the models will be able to integrate a number of factors that we haven't been able to integrate thus far. So one is just the vast amounts of data. We have individual data. We have clinical data for years and years. Patients may have been receiving care at this institution or a different institution for five or 10 years. So now we have ways of incorporating all those data. We have ways so we can look at individual data. We can look at demographic data. We can look at constantly changing neighborhood data, whether it's availability of, whether it's grocery stores, to use that example, pharmacies or other things. So I think integrating all of these, and these models are complex. When one affects, when one thing changes, five other things may change. 
And that's how AI can incorporate a number of these things. So they can interact, they can incorporate these individual factors. They can incorporate how these factors interact with each other and take into account that things change over time. People may move from one place to another. New facilities may come up, new stores may come up, some stores may shut down. So a lot of there's a lot of dynamic interaction in a community and using with AI models, we will be able to incorporate these in ways that previous models didn't necessarily allow us to. That's also really exciting because that's one of the tough things to do whenever you're looking at interconnected webs of data and you're thinking about social determinants of health. But talk a little bit about where using AI can go wrong? Adria, it's, it's a great question about, and you know, there, there are a lot of articles and people talking about the promise of AI and how AI is expected to solve almost every problem that we couldn't solve um, to date. We also have to have a, a balanced perspective and ask, could it widen some of our problems? Could it Uh, create new problems or introduce new problems that we had not anticipated. And that's always reasonable to to consider. And I I think with AI, we've talked a lot about the, the positives of it, benefits. One of the areas where AI could potentially could potentially widen things is people people are very concerned about uh, what does it mean for their job? Do they have, and then I'm talking about the perspective of healthcare providers, people who work in healthcare systems, institutions, hospitals. People are asking, and it's a, it's a fair question, if we move more towards AI-based models, does it mean we're going to need fewer doctors? Does it mean we're going to need fewer nurses fewer staff at the hospital. And so there are implications for the workforce and what what will it mean for that? This comes up a lot. And my my perspective on this is AI will allow all of us to do our jobs better by providing better information earlier than than our current methods will allow. One of the core foundations of any patient provider interaction is the human connection. I don't believe there is anything that will replace that. Not AI, not the best AI model, not the best robot or anything that which people always are worried about, not the best robot that will replace entirely that connection. And even if we are able to create that robot, I think the patient will know it's a robot. So I don't believe we're ever going to replace the warmth, the connection, the personal touch that exists between a provider and patient. So I feel that that's sacred in any patient interaction and that will always remain. What I hope AI will allow us to do is be smarter about how we use our time, allow us to spend more time with patients, talk more about the implications of their results, talk more about what's important to them, talk more about preventing disease, talk more about managing disease, talk more about improving their quality of life. And I think as a health system, if we can spend, if we can redirect our time away from what we're doing right now, more towards all of these things, with the help of AI, I think we will all win. So that I think is a huge plus for AI. And could it 
replace certain types of algorithms or models? Probably, and that's the hope. And that's exactly why people are doing it. So the hope is that we will be able to replace certain things. But as we consider other potential side effects, there is, and we've talked about this, Adria, it's about, are we going to increase the divide? If we do not invest in technology, for so that all people can access broadband, so that all people can access virtual care, so that all people can access even this robot or anything that's automated, we will certainly increase the divide and worsen health disparities. And that will no longer just be a rural-urban disparity. That's going to be more of a socioeconomic disparity. And that can happen even in the same city. It can happen within a block of each other where one can afford and one cannot afford. You will create disparities between blocks, between neighborhoods and communities. It's no longer going to be a rural urban problem only. So that's, it, it certainly has the potential to do that. The other area where it has a potential is it has a potential to widen disparities between nations. On a, on a macro level, if one nation is able to invest more in health technology and AI and all the infrastructure around it and other countries lag, we're going to increase the disparities between nations, both with preventive health as well as management, technology, investment in the workforce. So those are all areas where, where AI does have uh, the potential to widen disparities, increase health problems, again, based on simply by where you live, virtue of where you live, your socioeconomic status, based on your health literacy. Health literacy is now being recognized more and more as a major determinant of health. So we could, if we're not careful and thoughtful about this, we could end up increasing some of the disparities based on rurality, literacy, the country where you live, the language you speak, based on all of these factors, which we're not intending to do, but we could end up worsening some of these disparities. You mentioned how clinicians will use these things. And I wanted to go back to your description of artificial intelligence versus um, augmented intelligence. If a clinician who hasn't used AI power tools before were to use it to augment their intelligence, what might that look like? In terms of augmenting, and, and people sometimes use this to be explicit that the tools are there to augment or improve what the provider or the health system or our current knowledge can bring. And there are ways in which we can do this. If we are to rely on this more as a tool to augment our current understanding, then we recognize that we will need additional information that we are currently not able to process or not able to understand or not able to make an explicit link between this pattern and a disease or this pattern and a particular patient outcome. And that's where augmenting it with current, with newer models and newer networks, which is what a lot of AI uses, to be able to use more integrated, nuanced networks in a way that we can't necessarily process. I think that's where we will make a bigger difference so that we don't exclude or leave out information that we currently don't understand or don't or cannot process, but the AI models are able to integrate and improve our way of either diagnosing or improving prevention or treatment. So I think there are a lot of data. For example, you know, I could see some a pattern on the road today and it may mean nothing to me and I may ignore it. However, if I have a model that's able to integrate some of the other signals and tell me, no, look out, there could be a car coming, or it might start raining in 30 minutes, or there's some kind of danger in two blocks, don't walk in that direction, 
that's that's fantastic. Normally, I would not be able to process. Maybe I, I cannot see past one block, but maybe if this model can see two blocks, three blocks, and five blocks and warn me of certain dangers that I could be walking into, then I think that's fantastic. And that's exactly what we want to do is we want to be able to get information earlier than we currently do, identify patterns better than we currently do, and hopefully use all these to improve patients' outcomes. You mentioned neural networks. If you could describe a neural network to one of your colleagues who is new to AI, how would you describe it? Adrian, that's a wonderful point on on neural networks and a large part of this motivation. We can think about a very simple way of events, a simple chain of events. So we can have one point, we can draw a line to the next point, and then we can draw a line to the next point. So we have three points and we just draw a straight line makes perfect sense. You go from A to B, you go from B to C, very simple. Then we can say, let's add about five points and then let's start connecting, interconnecting all these points. And then we can make it a little more complicated. The best motivation is in our brain. And that's how our brains are wired. It's not perfect one. So we have brain cells or neurons. It's not one neuron to the next and then to the third and the fourth and the fifth. There's a large network, there's interconnectivity. There is information that's received in one place. It influences one, 10, hundreds, millions. And that's how information flows. And that's how we may not be aware of everything that our brain is processing, but our brain has integrated information. So it takes in what I see, what I hear, what I feel, what I experience, what I smell, what I taste. It integrates all this information and it gives me a complex output, such as an emotion, or it makes me say something, or it makes me keep quiet, or it makes me behave a certain way. So I don't, if you ask me, how did you decide to say this? Or how did you decide to do that? I can't tell you, Adria, I heard three things and I saw four things. Shortly after that, I did this and I did that. And based on all of these, I decided to do this. These are very complex models. And that's exactly what some of these models are trying to do is recapture the way the brain processes information, the way neurons process information. They take in information from millions of places, they influence millions of neurons, and that's exactly what we want to do. So now instead of neurons, let's just take an individual's age and race and sex and ethnicity, and then let's add social, um, social determinants of health, where they live, grocery stores, and then let's add in family history, let's add in medical conditions, let's add in life experiences, let's add in work and everything else. You can see where we've already talked about 20 factors here. Let's just add a lot more. And then your lab data, your medical record data, let's just add everything in. You can start to see how all these things can interconnect and how all of them can influence each other. And that's what we're trying to do with neural networks is recognize that the system is complex. Not, not try to oversimplify it. Recognize it's complex. Let's try and build the best model we can to understand these. And the best motivation or inspiration comes from our brain. That's pretty exciting. I love the way that you explained that too. It made complete sense. How might those of us who haven't engaged in this work become more involved and more educated? Adria, thanks very much for asking about other ways in which we can transform our community and particularly rural healthcare. And as you know, within Mayo Clinic, we have the Mayo Clinic Health System, which includes hospitals, 
and clinics in Minnesota, neighboring Wisconsin, and Iowa. And it's very exciting. The School of Continuous Professional Development at Mayo Clinic is hosting a conference. It's the first of its kind in September. It's on transforming community and rural healthcare. And it touches on the topics that you raised, which is talks about digital workforce, talks about the digital health, talks about the workforce innovation, and a number of people from interdisciplinary areas are all going to be involved in this conference. And I think they're going to talk about a number of things that we also discussed today. That's exciting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I always end each episode with a couple of big questions. So the first is, how do you know you can really trust someone? You're asking me how my neural network works in deciding how I trust. Trust is is very is a very difficult concept to define and trust is something that you build over time. And ultimately the way I decide to trust someone is if I see that their thoughts, actions and words all align. Mm. And that's when I know that I can trust them. But it takes time to see all of those and it takes time to develop. Mm-hmm. That makes it hard when we try to transfer that understanding to machines. Yes. And and I think for a lot of people who are worried about losing their jobs, I think ultimately um, we are going to be, we, we have to have people in charge of data and machines, as intelligent as a machine may be, as intelligent as the AI model, a machine learning model may be. We ultimately need human gatekeepers to ensure that the information is being used in the right way. Uh, it's not excluding people. It is not designed to discriminate against people. So we will need human gatekeepers for that because ultimately, uh, if there's no trust, then there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Another quick question is the big wondering, what keeps you up at night? Adria, I don't think we have enough time to talk about what keeps <laughs> me up at night. No. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it, what keeps me up at night, it just depends on the day of the week. Uh, in terms of what, what's on my mind. And one of the things that that motivates me, and I, and I mean this sincerely, uh, we've talked about a lot of complex and heavy topics, but I, I mean this sincerely. And people have said this better in, in the past, and uh, a lot of leaders in America and other places have said this, that ultimately the way we provide care and take care of the weakest segments of our society will is how a society is going to be judged. And... That's what motivates me every day. And it brings me to work every day uh, to do the best we can. And disparities research is, is very close to my heart. And some there are days when this does keep me up at night in terms of how we're going to finish certain things or how will we interpret certain findings or when we've had findings, we've talked about the rural uh, health, the rural diabetes uh, and death rates. That that, that was disturbing to see those results. And those kinds of things sincerely keep me up uh, where, where we think about it and say, now we have these results, what do we do about it? Who is in a position to make a difference? As researchers, we provide the results, but who's in a position to take these and whether it's policy, which you talked about, or decision-making or funding or protecting people. So those are some of the things that, uh, that keep me up at night. Most days, other days it's Netflix. Lovely. Okay. And one really light question doesn't have to do with AI at all, but it could be. If you had a tool to help you solve any problem, what tool would that be? What would it help you solve? 
I'm I'm usually never without anything to say, but <laughs> if there if there's one tool that I could have, is it would be I I love coffee, mm. and uh, I love my morning coffee. So if if I had a tool that could have this coffee as soon as I wake up, or better still, it would be ready and it would wake me up and it had an alarm built into it that would wake me up on time. That would be the best start to my day. <laughs> that sounds magical. It sounds like something that old uh, sharper image catalogs would have had in them. So I'll have to look to see if I can find any old school stuff like that. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned quite a lot. Same here. Now, thank you, Adrian. It was great to meet you. This is the first time meeting. And so thanks for this opportunity. 